0: You are listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. Give you a little context while you're on your way there. This, this prayer of the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, this, the, the great agony he was feeling at the same time he, is, he has this sense of accomplishment, he's understanding uh, it's, it's as good as done. This prayer divided into sections where he communes with the Father, then where in two parts, last week and this week, where he is praying for the apostles, and uh, starting next week, verses 20 to 26, where the Lord Jesus is praying for those who believe through the message of the apostles. So we read verses 13 through 19, again, taking the second half of a section where Jesus was praying for the eleven. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth as you sent me into the world i also have sent them into the world for their sakes i sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth let's pray our father teach us your word bring us the joy of which jesus speaks the, the joy for which jesus prayed for not only the apostles, but ultimately for those of us who would believe the message of the apostles. Thank you for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Thank you for the change you bring now. Thank you for your powerful word. And we're asking you to to show that work in us, disturb us with truth, and show us the hope that that disturbance can be settled, that there's that there's a a means of change, a means of forgiveness, a means of life in what we're studying right now. In your son's name we come, amen. Please be seated. So if Jesus were praying for you now, for what would he pray? If, if the Lord Jesus is going to pray for you now, what is he going to ask the Father? If that question seems kind of out of line for you, you need to understand, number one, he is praying now. If you're a believer, he stands and intercedes before the Father on your behalf and, and the wounds of his that, that he suffered his his death on the cross that is the the ultimate pleading before the father but but we have an advocate when you and i sin believer we have a a defense attorney before the father the lord jesus does pray for his people and a pattern for that because he never changes his character is shown in how he prayed for his people in john chapter 17 if you've ever overheard, and Mike brought this up a couple of weeks ago, and I, I, I brought it up this past week, if you've ever overheard someone praying for you, you learn a lot about what they think of you, that their love for you, perhaps that shows in the fact that they're praying, but what do they see in you that they, they think, I need to pray for that person? It may just be that you have a physical need and they're praying for you. It may be that there are some things in your life that you don't see, that they see and as somebody who can see a little further down the road than you, God's given them that special wisdom and so they know how to pray. So to answer that question, if Jesus were praying for you now, how would he pray? You may or may not know the answer to that. I'll give you a, a, a practical example of that. A lot of times if I get together with someone I've, I've never met and, and we're, we're talking about struggles in their life and they're saying, you know, you're a pastor and here's what's going on in my life. Uh, and and I I do my best to listen to what they have to say, and to to help help them find hope from God's word because He made us. He wrote the owner's manual. But I I will so often ask them to come back to see me, and I'll say you know I want you to work on this this and this. So this is not a therapy session. I'm not just going to listen to you every week when we get together. But what I'm going to do is ask you just to make a list, and I want you to evaluate your heart and and make this. Uh, list of ten things you think God wants to change about you. Now, how would they know what that is? And honestly, there are some people who haven't a clue. But I'm guessing if I were to ask you to make that list, believer, you would be able to sit down as I could, and you say, you know, these are things that have been bugging me about me. They they make my conscience uneasy, and I've just been kind of coasting just thankful that I've been flying under the radar of judgment. I've I've not gone down because of this area of my life. Maybe I've been saying, "Ah, that's not so bad because I know a lot of other people at church who do the same thing. If the Lord Jesus is, is bringing change, bringing sanctification to his people. And that really is what this is all about. He is praying the father set apart my people, make them, make them distinct, make them holy what does that look like? Not only what does the prayer of Jesus look like, but what does that holiness look like on you? It's pretty important because it's it's showing us how we ought to be standing out in this world. So here the Lord Jesus realizing that the hour has come that he's accomplished everything and you say, well, he didn't go to the cross yet, so that work isn't finished. But it was as good as done. The wheels are in motion. The down down to the Kidron Valley, I, I pointed this out already, Judas and henchmen are on the way. They're going to meet them on the other side of the, the Kidron Valley and, and it's, it's going to get ugly fast. It's, it stands as though it has already happened, which is why in this first verse of our study, Jesus says, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. One question that would be good to ask, is: good to ask questions of a text, that is what's joy? What kind of joy is he talking about here? Is this just happiness? Could you in a legitimate translation of the Bible, say, well, what Jesus was praying is, what he wants for us is just to be happy. Put that word in here. But now I come to you in these things I speak in the world that they may have my happiness made full in themselves. I, I'm arguing that this is not the same kind of joy people create by buying stuff or taking chemicals or finding some means of entertainment. This is his joy. Joy. Note the text. My joy. He says it's complete joy. It's, it's full. It's, it's what joy was intended to be. Which leads me to believe it is something more than what you can buy or, or a pill you can take or some show you can attend. As nice as some of those experience a good feeling as those experiences might be. Jesus wants his people to experience joy. That's what he prays for. I think noteworthy here is the context of this joy. Because it would come as the world system poured out what? Look at the next verse. I, I want to point one thing out before we move on to what the next words say. Yeah, because C.S. Lewis, in uh, this is a letter that actually was found. I just, I just came across it this week. Uh, he had written a letter to someone and it was tucked in a book and somebody bought it in a bookstore. Go to bookstores and buy things. You find interesting things in them. And this person had found a personal letter written by C.S. Lewis in, in which he was describing what joy is. And he said this, one second of joy is worth 12 hours of pleasure. There's a difference There's a difference between joy and happiness or pleasure. And now I'll go to this next verse. I have given them, my people, the 11 in this case, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. Doesn't that look like something that wouldn't go together? I want them to have joy and the world hates them. The world system can't stand them. Give them joy. What does that tell you about Jesus' joy? Joy. It's something that's certainly not determined by circumstances. Have you ever had a really, really rotten week? And rotten meaning painful, hard, all the things you didn't want to happen did happen, and all the things you wanted to happen didn't happen. And you get to the end, you say, well, if, if you were to put, Your level of joy this week on on a scale from zero to 100, where would your level of joy be? And honestly, a lot of us would say, well, you know, let me tell you what my week was like, or let me tell you what my day was like, and we can argue about who had the the worst day or week. And somehow we've we've bought into this error that our level of joy is determined by circumstances. Jesus says, no, these people are going to go through it. The world hates them because the world hated me, and I want them to have my joy. I don't want them to have pleasure. I'm not, I'm not asking for them to have happiness. There's something bigger. He's saying that this holiness, this sanctification, looks, l- makes the people look very, very different than those around them. They shine in the darkness. Here in verse 14, again, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Um, Jesus reverted back to the standard word for word. We talked about this last week. He, he spoke of utterances. Uh, there were utterances that the father had given him, and he said, I, I gave you all the utterances the father gave me to give. It's the, the rhema word, but now it's, he, he goes back to his common word that john likes uh, in the beginning was the word it's used of the written word of god it's used of jesus the living word of god and don't confuse them but in this context jesus says this this is the revelation that you've given me i've given to them believers have to live life in the world without allowing the world to press them into its mold that's that's Romans 12 1 and 2 if you've memorized that and it really does carry a positive and a negative distinction for instance followers of Christ positively are going to do certain things that most worldlings do not and yes that that often does bring them to be hated for instance fighting temptations that others would never fight Serving others purely from a heart that loves Jesus, even even the active things like proclaiming the gospel of Christ, like believing, not that I want to tell this person about Jesus so they make a profession of faith and I can cut a notch in my Bible and say what a great soul winner I am, but because I, I honestly believe that that what I have to offer is something that would be good for that person, and so I'm willing to suffer persecution and to look the fool positively doing something that most people, certainly people in the world, would not do. That's the positive part of this. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. They're they're ambassadors. We're ambassadors. And you know what happened to these 11 men who were listening to Jesus as uh, as he preached his discourse before this and as he rejoined them after his prayer time. So it means that followers of Christ are going to do some things that most worldlings will not do, but negatively, it also means that disciples are going to refrain from doing things that most people in this world system do. Like living a self-focused life, like having an emotions-based existence, that if I feel like doing something, I do it. If I don't feel like doing something, I don't. This is not about achievement or lack of achievement. I I think we ought to be pro-achievement, but for the right reasons. Because we love Jesus, we do certain things, and we refrain from certain things, and the world just doesn't understand that. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. That means this, and I I, I guess the someone who put it very well was a guy named John Newton who lived in the world system, who lived, this is the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, who, who worked on a slave ship and ran a slave ship and understood what it was to live uh, as a part of this world system. Understood what it was like to hate the people who were followers of Christ. In his later years, he wrote this, assurance grows by repeated conflict, by our repeated experimental proof of the Lord's power and goodness to save. When we have been brought very low and helped, sorely wounded and healed, cast down and raised again, having given up all hope and been suddenly snatched from danger and placed in safety, And when these things have been repeated to us and in us a thousand times over, we begin to learn to trust simply to the word and power of God beyond and against appearances. And this trust, when habitual and strong, bears the name of assurance, for even assurance has degrees. These questions, do you know that you have eternal life? John later wrote, I've written these things to you so that you'll know that you have eternal life. And as we grow to see him more and more as he is, even though we're living here in this world, we come increasingly to know there's, a, there's something sweet about being not of this world. And I have this growing assurance that, that this is not home. That, that the things that I do that make me unpopular with worldlings, and it's, we don't hate these people, they're made in the image of God, and they're doing what comes naturally. So be careful how you take this. But when, when we become unpopular because we represent Jesus in our workplace, or even in our home, or in a public forum, we recognize that, that there's a, a satisfaction that is growing in us. So Jesus knows what his disciples are going to go through. And he says, well, the world's hated them because they are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world. You say, well, why didn't he just rapture us out of here when he saved us? Because I mean, isn't that the ultimate end? The ultimate end is go to heaven, right? Uh, That's not the way Jesus prayed. He didn't say, Father, and, and bring them to believe and suck them out of this earth to heaven. In fact, he said just the opposite. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, to keep, but to keep them from the evil one. And I, I want you to understand w- what this means to be kept from the evil one. But I will say, first of all, negatively, he was not praying that they would never feel pain or be in need There's nothing wrong with praying for safety and travels and praying that that pain goes away, that mysterious pain or that horrible pain you're living with. There's nothing wrong with praying that the things that are making you afraid will go away. That's not a wrong thing, but you don't have that promise. There is not a promise of physical healing that believers have now. You say, whoa, wait a minute, that's not what I was taught." Come talk to me about it, email me. That there is something better, something so much better than prosperity, material prosperity that the Lord Jesus is offering. That's why he says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, just protect them from the evil one. Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it in these terms, he said, rather than calming the storm, the Lord calms the child in the storm. To be protected from the evil one means that in the middle of the storm, you'll not sin. In the middle of the the storm, you'll run to him instead of from him. In the middle of the storm, you'll not accuse him of evil, even though you may repeatedly cry out, why? Can you hear me, Lord? He knew what they were about to go through. We look at these as kind of sterile words and they they don't connect to us. You understand the Lord Jesus here is a real person who has felt real pain, who has felt rejection, who's felt and understood hatred. And he's getting ready to leave having accomplished what he was sent to do. And he is sending his ambassadors out into the world, knowing full well that they will suffer great loss relationally, materially, physically, that 10 of the 11 would die martyrs' death. And the the 11th one who was writing these words would certainly suffer greatly, even though he wouldn't become an ultimate martyr. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. He goes on in verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Meaning this isn't home. Just because you happen to physically be somewhere, you've all been in those places, right? You go to places like, I mean, for me, this is, please don't take offense if you're from New Jersey, but I'm, I'm telling you, there's about any place in the world I would like to be other than New Jersey. So when I have to be there, what I'm saying is, I can't even say it's a nice place to visit, but but, but to say, I'm here because I have to be here right now, and I'm thankful that there's something better outside of this. This is what he's saying. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Believers were born from above. That's something we learned in John chapter three. Believers are born from above. They're born of God, which means that's their home. Uh, The apostle Paul and and C.S. Lewis were in agreement on this one. And so I'll give you Paul first, okay? He told the church of Philippi, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, don't get too comfortable. Be satisfied and be content, but don't get too comfortable. We eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Simply put, King Jesus isn't isn't passive in all of this. And you are going to see him again, believer. He's going to take you home. One of my favorite all-time books and really an influence on my thinking was C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, uh, a, an oft-quoted text. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. This is not teaching when Jesus says, you're not of this world, that somehow you had this, this pre-existence, there was this soul bank, and then your soul came to earth, your soul is going to go back. That's error. That's Mormon error, actually. That's not something that the Bible teaches. But he is saying these, these people who came into this world as, as sinners, conceived, came into existence as a part of Adam's race, that there's hope. They've come to me, Jesus is saying, and I'm asking you not to take them out of here, but to keep them from the evil one. Help them to realize they're not of this world. This world is not my home. I'm what? Just a passing through, as you learned as a child. John 17, 17 is such a good, simple verse to memorize. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is. Is truth. It would have been accurate for Jesus to say, "Your word is true," but you notice that's not what he said. He he said, he said, "Your word is truth." I I was reading actually it was last last February. Um, I I was, <laughs> I, I, It's funny how you 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 smell certain smells and you remember where you were the last time you smelled that. Uh, I was actually sitting uh, in Haiti. With a, with a theology book uh, written by uh, Mr. Grudem, Wayne Grudem. And I, I just want to give you a, a, a quote from that book because it, it really is, it's helpful to me in understanding what the Lord Jesus was saying here. Uh, here are the words. He said, truth is the standard by which anything will be judged. A wife will be pleased if her husband says, you are beautiful. But she will melt if he says, you are beauty. You are the standard by which all beauty is judged. It is is accurate to say the Bible is truthful, but that's not what the Lord Jesus said. He said, your word is truth. Your word is truth, meaning it is the standard by which all truth is judged. That's the point that the Lord Jesus was trying to make. His people will be different as they become saturated with truth. Now you would expect to come here to a Baptist church and hear the pastor saying, "You really better read your Bible every day." But why? It's just a good habit? It helps you learn the rules? Or when I open the Bible, am I seeing the living God as he is? And then unfortunately, I, I see myself as I am. But then thankfully, I see that there's a way for me to be changed and to be different. And I, I read this word not as, as a, a list of rules, but as a means of God showing himself to me and showing how I can be changed. And here's the big one with what Jesus is saying setting me apart because I am learning to think his thoughts after him. That word sanctify is, is related to our word holy. Sanctify is the verb uh, holy or holiness is the noun. So we use the word to, to be made holy in, in the same way as we would say sanctify. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That, that tells me that the only way you're ever going to be different in this world, believer, is to spend time with God in his word. Yes, we ought to learn the discipline of prayer. But, but do you realize that, that I, I learned to pray by understanding how I should pray, by understanding who God is? It, it is vital for you and me to get this truth clear in our minds. The word of God is not simply true. It is truth. And so the Lord says in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. The the 11. That's another reminder that Jesus sends his people into uncomfortable circumstances. But he sends his people into uncomfortable circumstances with great design. Think about what the Lord Jesus had to endure coming to the earth. What did it mean to set aside The use of his attributes. What did it mean to set aside the worship of angels crying out day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory? He came to earth, he set aside that glory, not for comfort. So he says, Father, as you sent me into the world, I sent them into the world, because there's a design. There's a design in what you've gone through. If you're a believer, I'm not talking about suffering because you were, you were breaking the law and, and, and you were issued a citation for it. I'm not talking about suffering because you were an unfaithful employee and you got called on the carpet. We deserve those things. That's natural consequences. I'm talking about when, when you are even beyond the physical things. When you are living for the Lord Jesus and you are overlooked for promotions because you're looked upon as a fanatic Because people find out what you don't do and they feel like you just don't fit in. And sometimes what comes down after that is in one way or another, you are suffering for the cause of the gospel. And, and yes, it may go on to some of those physical problems that we have or, or, or someone betrays us in a relationship. Whatever is happening, is this just random? Is this just something that it's like, ugh, I I just, I have such bad luck. Or is there a design where God is taking you through this to make you like his son? You know, that's a part of the sanctification process. And so King Jesus said, for their sakes, I sanctify myself. I set myself apart that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I want to touch on this just a little bit. I'm off script for a moment, but this is an illustration I often use with children. I I think we often think of sanctified as clean or holy as clean. And it may include that, but that's not just the picture. He's calling his people to be distinct, to be a a a bright light in in a world of dimness and, and the illustration I use with children is my wife's false graph. She has a special pattern. She could tell you what the name is, but we got this for our wedding and we've broken a bunch of them through the years. But, but we, goodwill, sometimes you can find those wonderful things by my wife's pattern. And so we have, this, we have this hutch that's full of this stuff. If you come to my house and you eat off that false graph, you may feel special because we, just, we don't eat off that stuff every day. So we got the cool glasses and they're different sizes and we've got the gravy boat or whatever you call that thing. And it's all got the same gray design and the little flowers on it. Now the point is this, that's sanctified dinnerware. It's not holy because it's clean. In fact, it, I mean, toddlers eat off of this stuff sometimes and, and it really looks bad after the meal. But the point is, it is given to a special purpose. How in the world can we as a, as a body of believers be sanctified? It's not a matter of saying, well, we don't go here and we don't go there and we don't consume this and we don't consume that. We certainly don't vote that way. And, and we think it, as, it's a matter of rules that we keep brings us personal holiness. Personal holiness is going to come out in the way you live and in the way you think, but it's going to come because we're so saturated with the word of God that when we walk in the world, we're distinct and we're getting our feet dirty while we're walking in the world and we're being exposed to unpleasant things and difficult things, hardness in this world. The Lord Jesus sanctified himself. That wasn't a matter of keeping rules. He was set apart and he says, I'm doing this so they would be set apart in what? truth. And the word of God is truth. I love to hear the students at Haiti Bible Institute say, as some of you have watched the video with, with one, of my, one of my translators, CJ said, Haiti do not need money. Haiti need truth. And, and that, is, that is it. What is going to transform us is not the, the right guy or gal in the White House or in the State House what is going to transform us is if we are saturated by the word of God. It doesn't run against good citizenship, but it does mean that no matter what is happening around us, external circumstances, nationally or locally, the people of God have been set apart because Jesus set himself apart. He had a design in that. So while we're trying to apply this, You realize that what the Lord Jesus was doing here is kind of like the head of a household making decisions that are going to benefit the whole family, even though they might bring some short-term difficulty. It's like a general leading troops into battle rather than sending them into battle. So Jesus continued praying for the 11 in this text that we've just studied. And he asked the father for some specific things. And one was that he wanted them sanctified that he wanted them to to be set apart, to be holy. And I'm arguing that just in this little text we're looking at today in the middle of this prayer really does show us what his intent was. What is it he wants to change about you, believer? What are the things that when you are holy, when you are set apart, not when you're sinlessly perfect, but when you've been set apart for a special purpose, what does that look like? Kids, this is for you as well. If you are in fact a follower of Christ, it's going to show up. Jesus prayed for you. He is praying for you. Some of you probably guessed this was coming. You live joyfully in spite of circumstances. That's holiness. That's holy living. That's that's being able to not only say, I think God is responsible for sending this trial in my life for a purpose. Okay, that's a step. That's a a step of growth. It's another thing to say, I think his purposes are always very, very good. That's another step. But but then I I really think one, one of the ultimate steps is not just I'm okay with that, but I delight in what he's doing in the middle of this. I have joy I have joy in the middle of this that I could never have had before because he's setting me apart. I don't have to live governed by my circumstances. I don't have to, and this is a pastor thing, and so some of you maybe, maybe won't grab this, but my level of joy for a lot of years rose and fell with attendance on uh, Sunday services and Wednesday night services. Because I mean, when you're a pastor, you work really hard and you want people to come and enjoy the meal and, and nobody shows up. But I realize that you guys are here, so I'm not bawling you out, okay? But, but I realize joy cannot be determined by circumstances. Joy is determined by who we are in Christ and to see what he is doing. To see when people don't live up to expectations that there's, design in that so the prayer for joy that we've just read came in the same breath as words about the world hating believers joy must never holy one saint be dictated by circumstances here's something else that shows us the way sanctification shows up in our lives You identify first with Jesus. Let me explain what that means. It doesn't mean that you give up personality or individuality. In fact, every believer with all of our different giftings, with all of our different personalities, there's a sweetness to that. You see that of these, these gospel writers and New Testament authors, you see their personalities come through in their writing. It isn't giving up individuality. But identifying with Jesus means that he can be seen in all of these individual believers living a holy life. When Jesus was, had ascended back to heaven and the spirit came and the believers are representing the Lord Jesus, one of the ways they were identified as having been with Jesus is their boldness. They stood in, in the middle of difficult circumstances when people hated them and just stood firm and spoke the truth. And uh, Luke tells us at one point that the people recognized them as having been with Jesus. Like, we've seen this before. We've seen this before. That's what I mean by identifying with Jesus. That's, That's holiness. My interest is not first and foremost in what my employer or my clients think of me. Not what my friends think of me. For that matter, not even what other people in church think of me. My identity is first with Jesus. Here's the third one. You live above the schemes of the evil one. I'll remind you again that Jesus did not pray down material prosperity or even physical safety on his people. That's not what he prayed. In fact, he did the opposite. He didn't pray down trouble, but he did say, I'm not asking you to take them out of this world. He asked that his people would be kept from sinning in the middle of these trials. It is possible. You can live a joyful, productive life when you can't sleep, when the pain doesn't go away, when the people who are badgering you and giving you a hard time don't quit, when it just seems that you don't have enough money, you can't even buy your kids shoes, and there's no hope in sight of all of that changing quickly. To be above the schemes of the evil one, to be living out what Jesus prayed for you, is not that hard things would not come. It's that you can live this way in joy, and you can live this way, identifying with Jesus, and you can live this way without sinning. It's possible because Jesus prayed for you and He is praying for you, believer. You probably guess this last one's coming too, and that is being saturated with truth. Saturated with the Word of God. I, I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty, all right? But I, I'm I'm one of your pastors. And I'm looking around at all of these eyes here and I know that you spend a lot of hours every day living and doing lots of things. And there are are lots of times when you can probably go through an entire day without thinking about me. But I want you to remember this. You will become a weak believer and you will be prone to those sins that have plagued you for a long time, the internal ones and the external ones, if you are not regularly listening to what God has to say, because you will learn to think his thoughts after him. And I am guessing there are probably people who've been believers for a long time, for whom it has been days or weeks or maybe longer since they have sat down and spent time with God, communing with him, listening to what he says. So you get his opinion on the matter and then talking to him about that. Let me urge you believer that this is his plan. If there was one thing he wants in his people, it's sanctification. And what brings that sanctification is truth. Not just true things. I'm going to read something true. You can get that out of the newspaper. A lot of it's true anyway. But this is, this is the standard by which all truth is judged. His word is truth. And that means if I want to hear from him, if I want to have a, a distinctively biblical and Christian worldview, if I want to see this world as Jesus sees it, I've got to hear what he has to say about it. And and soak in it, and there is transformation when you are saturated with the Word of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the freedom to make to make our gatherings all Bible all the time. To make our children's ministries, our our Sunday school classes, uh, our Bible studies outside this building in homes and restaurants. All of these things are are so biblically saturated because we're free, because you've put us in a position to to set those priorities. Help us to, to 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 make sure that that we are living holy lives. You've called us saints, and we've we've borne a pretty sorry resemblance of that this week in so many circumstances. So bring us to have a joy in thinking your thoughts after you and in, in analyzing everything through the filter you've given us. As we think about the rich salvation you've given us, we want to pray for those who, who are either in here or, or within hearing of this message or, or reading it online later, that there would be a, uh, an awakening to see themselves as guilty, to see Jesus as innocent, to see him, God the creator, coming to earth to bear their sins and rising again to give us hope for change and eternal life. Make the message clear, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.